Hi, and welcome back to Storytime with the Springs podcast. This podcast is where I share the stories I've been writing and making up for my kids at bedtime uh, with all of you. This particular episode is about the legend of Two Moons Bay, which is where the town of Urk, you know, resides. You know, it has a very unique shape, and I've been trying to come up with, uh, you know, reasons to explain why it is the way that it is. And it got me thinking, you know, what would parents in the world of the Iris Chronicles and, and specifically in the town of Urk tell their kids about its unique, you know, cr- uh, three-quarter crescent shape and how it came to be. And I sort of, you know, had one little explanation that, you know, it was where a giant used to sit down, um, you know, while it was relaxing. And then that turned into a whole explanation, you know, in one of our many sidetracked world-building discussions that we have while I'm telling any of the stories. And I felt it kind of merited an episode all on its own. So I will continue the Shark in the Bay story in the next few episodes and complete that. But in the meantime, we're going to sidetrack just like I do with my own kids. And, you know, I hope you enjoy this little creation myth that I came up with. Okay, enough explaining. Here we go. The Legend of Two Moons Bay, Chapter 1. Once upon a time, in a distant land, there was a small fishing town nestled on the side of a ridgeline overlooking a well-protected bay. The town is called Urk. This western-facing bay was rich in diverse sea life, which supported the town with its bounty. It was full of life due to a meandering river that carries nutrients from distant mountains through a vast forest all the way to the ocean. There was lots to eat for for the fish, and so there was lots of fish to eat for the fisherfolk of Urk. The bay was shaped like a perfect three-quarter crescent, and it was fittingly named Two Moons Bay for its striking resemblance to the frequent partial eclipses of the moons in the sky. Approximately every 29 days, the smaller moon, Lumia, would pass in front of her larger brother, Adagon, creating a spectacle that mirrored the bay's form. On the longest day of the year, the moon's eclipse would lined up perfectly with the bay's mouth, just as the moon set before dawn. It was an incredible sight. When the bay was still in the early dawn, the water would shimmer in the lunar light reflecting the eclipse. On these special mornings, all the residents of Urk would gather together on the hillside, near where the river left the forest's edge, as it was basking in the ethereal glow and sharing in the wonder of their unique home. The land at either end of the sandy beach rose into large, into two large and impressive ridgelines, almost mountainous in stature, their edges rising to peaks right at their tip. Every resident of Urk, officially called Urkatonians, but to each other Urkis, would have heard the legend of Two Moons Bay many times before they even learned how to speak themselves. It was a popular legend amongst the children of the town and was often told right at bedtime. It brought comfort to the children to learn that their bay had been shaped by a giant, one that had fallen asleep at the exact wrong time and was late for dinner, making his stormy mother extremely angry. It was said in the times before the creation of the world, when the old gods were still living in the realms of thought and magic, where time itself was very different. It was decided to create a material world, one where things could live and die, where actions would have consequences, and time ran in one direction, creating order out of chaos. So they started designing, building, and shaping this world, the world of Atlanteon. The old gods had children and gave them all jobs to do, and their children had jobs to do, and so on. Prince Ogdor was one of these children. He was one of the great mountain giants, and his job was to create what would become the largest mountain range in the world. From the moment he was born, his duty was to build the many thousands of mountains it would take to accomplish such a task. After a few million years, he was finally nearing the end of the job 
that he'd started as a small giant boy. Or maybe he was a giant small boy. In any case, no matter how young or old he was, he was still extremely large. He first started at the very far ends to the north and then to the south. Rather than picking one end and working in a dire- one direction, he would alternate each year or so, taking mountain-sized stone cubes from his brother's quarry far to the east, to the northern end, or to the southern end, with the plan to eventually meet in the middle. That way, while he was still a small giant, the mountains were smaller and further apart. This meant the farthest ends of the mountain range. The mountains were smaller and farther apart. But he soon grew older, bigger and stronger, and so the stone cubes he would carry got bigger and heavier too. The plan was that the mountains would be highest and thickest as he went along. And so it came to be that the mountains were the largest and most impressive in the middle two-thirds of this vast range. He grew up quickly and so did his work. So high and dense was this mountain range that even now very few people have ever crossed them except at the northern or southern parts. They are known by many names like the Great Wall or the Giant's Curtain or the Spine. It was one of the most inhospitable places in all of Atlantean. Very few people managed to cross them and even fewer live in them. Many tales about the monsters and creatures that inhabit the frozen peaks and glaciers have been told, but that is not this story. Chapter 2. This story is about Prince Ogdor and his very physically tiring and dirty job of building such a place. Every day he'd pick up and carry enormous square blocks from the quarry far to the east and place each stone cube next to the last. He would then chip away with his hammer and chisel until each of them became a perfect pyramid. Every mountain looked exactly the same, and Prince Ogdor took immense pride in this perfection. The leftover pieces of stone would pile up, and he'd shovel those piles to either side of the range, and these scrap piles would become lesser mountains and their foothills. The gravel that would form as he walked over these piles, crushing them underfoot, would become hills and boulders, and sometimes when he was cleaning up, he'd fling handfuls into the sky just to see them disappear, never caring where they'd land far away or if they even landed at all. As long as they weren't cluttering up his mountains, he thought to himself, I don't care where they go, but it's sure fun to see them leave. Of course, sometimes these stones would hit something, or worse, they'd hit someone, causing all manners of mayhem. Like the time his own mother was hit on the back of the head at a party she was attending with all the elder gods. This started a fight when she blamed an innocent goddess named Arunula and attacked her, and that turned into a full-on war. After this war of the gods, she became known as the goddess of all storms, but that's a story for another time. Even to this day, people will see his pebbles falling back to land, burning up in the night sky. The bigger ones would sometimes even make impacts big enough to cause explosions and leave craters or starting fires when they did. There are ones that sometimes appear for a few days or weeks in the sky, sometimes burning so bright they could be seen even during the day. These comets were considered omens, both good and bad, depending on who was doing the omening, as they wouldn't fall in land at all, but they could be predicted when they'd appear. The stones Ogdor threw that would land were often cursed or filled with mysterious magics, granting strange powers to whoever possessed them and had enough knowledge to use them and unlock their power. These magic falling stones were highly sought after by powerful people all over the world constantly. These days, people would sometimes say to children, throwing something carelessly like a rock, don't be an Ogdor, mind yourself where that thing could end up, as a way of saying not to hurt anyone unintentionally with thoughtless actions. Like many children tossing stones, 
Prince Ogdor thought it was just innocent fun, as there was no one to tell him not to. He was always throwing things around, showing off his strength, until the time he threw Princess Lumia at her brother Prince Adagon, making them both quite angry. But again, that's a story for another time. Another common saying was, don't throw anything if you don't know where it's going to land. Sometimes when someone would find a boulder in a field far from any mountain or any indication of how it got there, it would inevitably be named one of Ogdor's stones, whether it fell from the sky or not. The dust Prince Ogdor would kick up from his work of building mountains would settle all over the world as clay, sand, and soil. You can just imagine his size, as he was much bigger than any mountain. And that's why they called him a mountain giant, not a giant mountain. There were oceans far to the north, south, and east, but the one to the west was not too far from where he was now working. So close to finishing, he could hardly wait to show off all his hard work to the other gods, old and new. Chapter 3 One day, he found he was very hot, and so he took a moment to wipe the sweat from his eyes and forehead and found that the sun god, King Atan, was right overhead observing him. Noticing that Ogdor was looking up, King Atan addressed him, saying, I have been observing your work, Ogdor, and you've been very productive these last millions of years. Even from up here, it is very hard to see the ends of this mountain range from the middle. So many of the same mountains you've made. Oh, I thank you. I've been working very hard, Ogdor said. I'm getting very close to linking the southern and northern halves, as you can see proudly pointing to the gap between the southern and northern mountain ranges that was getting closer by the day. I just have this little small gap to fill, and, uh, and I'll finally be done with my work. He was beaming with pride. He'd taken King Atan's remark as a compliment. King Atan was quite taken back by this pronouncement, and Ogdor took the opportunity to explain further. Yeah, and, uh, and once I'm finished, I can't wait to take a nice long vacation. Uh, I've worked very hard on creating all these perfect mountains. I do hope you like them. And under his breath, he muttered, hopefully a vacation far away, far away from my family. Almost done? You're just going to leave them like this? King Atan seemed angry all of a sudden. You're not almost done. You're almost, you're not almost halfway done, you foolish oaf of a giant. Get back to work. You have much more to do. King Atan was clearly quite frustrated with Prince Ogdor. He walked away, leaving Prince Ogdor totally befuddled and confused at what the king could have meant. What did he mean he was not even half done his job? The king must have been able to see from high up there how far he'd come and the short, how short the distance was he'd, he had yet to complete. So what was he even talking about? I better figure it out before he comes back tomorrow, thought Prince to himself. As King Atan walked away and Prince Ogdor started to cool off, he looked at the gap between the southern and northern mountain ranges he'd planned on connecting in the middle, where they'd be tallest. He walked the gap back and forth, measuring it out. Certainly it would only be another 100,000 years, give or take, till he placed the, the few hundred cubes, and, and then only another 100,000 years or so before he chiseled them into perfect pyramids and polished them up, and they'd be done. He was so puzzled at what King Atan had meant by not even being close to finishing. Then he had a thought. Oh, of course. He wasn't talking about the mountains I haven't built yet, fool. A god as old and wise as King Atan would see that I'm so close to being done. But then, then what did he see from way up there that I could not from down here? And then it struck him like one of his mother's famous lightning bolts. Oh, no. He must have noticed something wrong with the ones I've already finished. When Prince Ogdor really looked at each mountain, trying to figure out 
what the king had seen unfinished with his work, he started noticing tiny imperfections. Little mistakes so small, not even a mouse would. But yet to a perfectionist like Prince Ogdor, they were as large as the mountains themselves. There did seem to be something wrong with each and every mountain he examined. On one, the peak was not sharp enough, he felt, after seeing it would not prick his finger on its Of course, of course, I see the imperfections in each mountain. And once I complete the range, I'll go back and fix each one individually, even though it will probably take me the rest of my life, which will be many millions of years from now. But in my defense, my tools have been getting quite blunt, and I do get very tired and hot in the afternoon when you're right overhead. Uh, please, King of Ten, don't tell my mother. I promise I won't take a real vacation until every mountain is cleaned up and looks exactly like all the rest. You can, and you can judge them all to finally be perfectly the same. Right up to and exceeding your exacting standards, of course, I will work until the day I die, sharpening every point and polishing every slope until you deem it uh, exceptional or uh, at least uh, acceptable. Ogdor trailed off, realizing he'd been rambling on. King Atan had been silent, allowing the prince to go on and on only because he was taken completely by surprise. For just a moment, he did not understand how Ogdor had so completely misinterpreted his words. Did you, did you really say you won't be finished until each mountain is exactly the same? Prince Ogdor felt some confidence returning, thinking the king and him were now seeing eye to eye, as if that were even possible. Why, king, of course! I take more pride in my work than any of the other gods, and I will be happy to prove it to you, even if it takes another hundred million years making it all perfectly symmetrical and the same. The same as far as any could see. Each one a perfect copy of the next. Uh, he trailed off, realizing the king had resumed his walk and was now ignoring him. Octor, you silly oaf indeed. That was too close a call. You, you better get back to your work. Chapter 5 The king, of course, had seen right through Ogdor's excuses and lies. He knew how afraid he could make the other gods and their children. He'd burned up more than a few for breaking his rules to set examples to all the rest that they better work hard and well to earn his favor. As he continued on his walk, and for many days afterwards, he continued to stop overhead of Prince Ogdor as he contemplated how he completely despised the sameness of everything Ogdor made, and now the foolish oaf was going to make it even worse for eternity if he didn't do something about it. It made him feel an emptiness of profound boredom staring at this sea of gray sameness. It was the least favorite part of his walk, and one he hated very much as there was no beauty in everything being exactly the same. Weren't they all supposed to be creating something unique and beautiful? And if everything was the same as everything else, then it would be just the same as nothing at all, and nothing should not ever be. That's why we started creating this world in the first place. Something has to exist, always, and it ought to be beautiful, he thought to himself. I should think carefully what I say next to Prince Ogdor, lest I make matters even worse. For as wise as King Atan was, he was an artist at heart, too. His own children were endlessly creative, with talents for making works of astounding beauty. Every single one they made was unique. For one that could see as far and as wide as him, he had to admit he could not see everything. He hadn't even considered before that the other children of the gods may not have possessed those artistic talents too. He assumed that part of Ogdor's job would be to make each mountain its own unique creation once he'd finished placing them all. 
and he was very much looking forward to that happening. Really, he had become angry at himself out of his own frustration at misplaced expectations, and it just came out at Ogdor. It wasn't that Prince Ogdor was just being lazy and wasn't going to finish his work. He built them all to be the same on purpose. That was his true nature, King Atan saw. But what could King Atan do about it? It wasn't like he could make Prince Ogdor change. It was his nature to be this way. His version of perfection was endless refinement of sameness, as he'd never known anything different. That's a job that can have an end. That's how a builder would think. An artist creating something new and different would have a much different version of perfect, and a unique perspective at that. One day, King Atan was standing over Ogdor, considering how to solve this problem of an ocean of endlessly repeating pyramids, a problem he'd made worse with his careless comments to Ogdor. He knew that sometimes adults can say things without thinking that have very unintended consequences, and he wasn't going to repeat that mistake again, at least not with Ogdor. King Atan could not think of a way to turn Ogdor into the artist he wanted him to be, and was lost in thought when Prince Ogdor spoke up, startling him out of it. King Atan, I don't mean to be rude, but you're being very, very hot right now. It is making me very sweaty, and I'm getting very dusty and dirty. My mother hates it when I come home for dinner sweaty and dirty, and I'm afraid I won't have enough time to wash up properly. You know how she gets when she's upset, Prince Ogdor said with some fear in his voice. King Atan realized he'd been standing there for too long thinking about Prince Ogdor and his complete lack of creativity. He looked down to reply, I most certainly do know she is one of the most fierce and fearsome gods. She can even block my light and heat from reaching the world below when she desires it for a time. I tease her sometimes just to see her wield this power. All the gods think it is so impressive what she can do. That's when it hit him, and he knew exactly what to say. He came up with a very clever plan that would change the face of the world forever and make this mountain range the work of art he desired it to be. For King Atan could see far and wide, and this made him very, very wise. He could see the consequences of actions through time, like ripples meeting other ripples in a pond, and he knew almost all of what would happen or would be when he spoke next to Prince Ogdor. King Atan had a huge smile on his face when he said, You know what? You're doing great work here, Prince Ogdor, but I must resume my duties, and I'm quite looking forward to cooling off before dinner with a swim. You should follow my path later, when you're done. It will take you to the ocean's edge, which is just a short walk from here. You can soak your feet and wash up there before heading home for dinner yourself. He smiled, knowing full well what events were to happen next. He had put events in motion that would create the biggest storm the world had ever seen since the last time the gods went to war with each other. And this time, no one would blame him for it. It was a brilliant plan, he thought to himself merrily, as he turned and walked to the west across the sky. Chapter 6 It had been a particularly hot and hard day of work with King Atan standing over him all that time, and so Prince Ogdor thought it that sounded like an excellent idea of the king's. The king could clearly see how especially hot and sweaty Ogdor was, and his feet were very sore from all the stamping around on hard stones. Even though he had strict instructions to always head straight home after work from his parents, he didn't see the harm in taking King Atan's advice. His mother always warned that something bad would happen to him if he dallied around after dark, but he'd never been told exactly what that would be. On top of that, if the sun god, king of all creation, suggested it, what harm could there be to himself? At home, him and his siblings always had to wash up with hot lava to get off all the dirt, and lava baths were not his favorite. He liked the idea of experiencing something different very much indeed. 
And when he was done his day's work, he saw the king walking in the distance and followed him to the ocean. The shoreline at this time was just made up of tall, rocky cliffs as far as the eye could see to the north. But that wasn't so bad for Prince Ogdor. He sat down on the edge as if it was the side of a pool and put his legs in the water. He loved the sensation of the cool sea on his sore feet, and he started to wash up for dinner. That was when he discovered Lumia, one of the daughters of the sun, practicing her painting on the sky. She did this every time her father would turn his back on the land he'd been walking above all day by going for a dip just past the ocean's horizon. And as he disappeared into the ocean's depths, gradually taking his light with him, Lumia's latest painting would slowly disappear as well. Every day, Lumia would walk back to greet her father, wait for him to turn his back, and begin painting all over again. She was determined to make the most beautiful and unique paintings every day before she'd run out of time. Ogdor immediately fell in love with the beauty of her paintings and was always amazed at her endless creativity. No two were ever the same. During his many visits to the coast, he smoothed out the rocky shoreline of cliffs and built up some ridges on the sides of where he would sit to make it resemble a chair with comfortable armrests so he could lean back and relax. He enjoyed relaxing there after he washed up as he cooled his sore feet in the ocean before making his journey home in time for supper. He was always so tired and hot when he arrived there as it seemed King Etan was staying longer and longer overhead in the middle of each day to watch him work. Prince Ogdor was often too tired to clap or show his enthusiasm, so he'd show Princess Lumia his appreciation of her work by giving her just two giant thumbs up without even lifting his arms from the armrests he'd built. He lay back smiling, and Lumia loved having someone so appreciative of her work, even if he was half asleep with a silly grin on his face, giving her two thumbs up by the time she was done. His fists were like small mountains themselves, they were so large, so she could easily see the kind gesture he always made for her, no matter how tired he was. It was so quiet and peaceful there, not like his home with his noisy and boisterous family. Over time, his chair began to fit him perfectly. Its armrests were in just the right position for him, and over the course of his many visits, the rocky cliffside gave way to what ended up being a smooth hillside ending in a nice sandy beach. He could relax there like he could nowhere else, and he always looked forward to this part of the day. His peaceful spot on the coast was a little piece of heaven just for himself. The story goes, one day before Prince Ogdor arrived at his favorite spot, King Atan had asked Princess Lumia to make a painting especially peaceful and relaxing. He rarely requested anything from her, so she really put in her best effort, and it truly was one of her best paintings. This day just happened to be the one where Ogdor had finally carried the last giant stone cube and shaped it into a pyramid mountain like all the rest. Finally, he had completed his original task of building and shaping the largest mountain range in all of Atlanteon. Ogdor was not looking forward to fixing every last mountain for the next hundred million years or so, but he was proud of what he'd accomplished so far. But now he was determined to carefully go over every mountain, making sure they were all absolutely perfect, and he was feeling a little depressed at having to start all over again. But he thought, at least it will give me another hundred million years or so to visit Princess Lumia and enjoy her paintings in my lounge chair by the sea. King Itan had been visiting longer and longer in the middle of each day. It seemed today had been the longest and hottest day Ogdor had ever experienced. So when he visited Lumia, he was more tired than he'd ever been before. 
Her painting was so exquisitely peaceful, and it was such a relaxing evening, that he was lulled into a very deep sleep. But falling asleep like this had never happened before, because Prince Ogdor would have never willingly risked being late for dinner. And if your mother is Queen Oom, the goddess of all storms, you wouldn't ever risk it either. At the same time, Ogdor was falling asleep in his chair. Back at the palace, Queen Oom was calling for her children to come to dinner, just like she did every evening. They all arrived immediately right on time and washed up properly, except for Ogdor. She called for Ogdor again and again, while his brothers and sisters quietly snickered as they sat at the dinner table. They knew full well what would happen if he was late and couldn't wait to see their mother blow up at him. They were always trying to get each other in trouble just to see one of her epic storbs come down and pummel their sibling. They found it endlessly hilarious, but they wouldn't be laughing when it was their turn to catch the beating. You might think Queen Oom to be a cruel mother, but just you try to keep 13 giants in line. Queen Oom hated it when her children disrespected her cooking by being late or entering her home tracking dirt all over the place from their work. She decided she would have to go back and look for him and bring him home herself. She left her children to eat their dinners with strict instructions to clean up when they were done and to get into bed right after that if she wasn't home in time. As soon as she left the house, the children all burst out laughing and talking about how much trouble Prince Ogdor would be in once she found them. They were excited for the show. Queen Oom was furious that she wasn't able to rest at the end of a long day and that she'd have to go out and search where he'd last been working. She thought to herself he'd probably just been daydreaming or slacking off, throwing rocks around, and lost track of time. Well, she was going to show him what a mistake that was, one he'd never repeat. And as she walked, she thought of a thousand ways she'd make him suffer as her anger grew and grew. When she finally reached the center of the mountain range, where she expected him to be, she was shocked when he wasn't there and only found his tools. Her anger at his disobedience for not being home on time for supper quickly turned to fear. Ogdor always came home straight after his work, or so she thought, not knowing about a secret spot by the ocean. She began to imagine a thousand awful things that could have happened to her precious, silly, stupid son. Dark thoughts that fill the hearts of every parent as soon as they find their child is suddenly missing. Looking around for any clue where he could have gone or what might have happened to him, she noticed a path that he'd been taking every day to the shore and followed it, her panic growing at what she would find at its end. Would he be in a thousand pieces? Would he even still be alive? She became quite panicked. So you can imagine her emotions when she found him there, lying in the dark, unmoving. And as she ran up to him, though, she saw that he was just sleeping soundly with a smile still on his face, his legs in the water up to his knees, and his two thumbs up, still at the end of each armrest. To her, he looked like a lazy fool, and it caused her desperate panic to turn instantly into a white-hot rage. She got so angry so instantly that she woke him up by grabbing him by the hair on his head and flinging him as hard as she could into the sky. In her fury, Queen Oom had summoned the strength of a thousand tornadoes, the force of a thousand hurricanes with the speed of lightning. Legend goes he flew screaming in terror five times around the whole world until he crashed into the palace wall. So great was the strength of her storm, and so suddenly did she do this that his arms from the elbow down and the part of his legs just below the knees stayed exactly where they were 
and did not have time to follow the rest of his body. They just popped off. They stayed right where they were, turning to stone as they atrophied. But that was not the end of her tempest. She flew back to the palace and proceeded to drag poor armless and footless Ogdor up and down the entire length of the mountain range he'd finished for a whole year, beating him against the mountains as he cried and cried for her to stop. So fearsome and brutal was the storm of all storms that even King Atan dared not to come out of his palace lest he catch some of her wrath. Eventually, the storm passed, as even the worst ones always do, and she calmed down, and she took her youngest son home and found him new arms and legs and bandaged him up so he could heal from her vicious beating. For a very long time after this, all of her children behaved like perfect little angels. They stopped even trying to get each other in trouble anymore, as they felt so sorry for poor Ogdor, and even more afraid of their mother's power and storm. Chapter 8 King Atan marveled at the genius of his plan when he went out walking finally when the storm had passed. The mountain range was absolutely stunning everywhere he looked. Every mountain was now totally different from the next. So thorough was Queen Um's massive storm that every last part of that mountain range had been changed. Where it was a sea of bland sameness before, it was now a stunning and endlessly unique landscape of cornices, ridgelines, bowls, and glaciers. There were lakes and peaks upon endlessly different lakes, and now there were moraines, scree slopes, cliffs, and rivers and valleys of every shape he could have ever hoped for. And no two walks were ever the same again as he passed over them. He could not have been happier with the results of his plan. Well, that is until Prince Ogdor found out about it and took his revenge many, many, many eons later, starting what would become the final war of the gods, a war where that would be the end of everything when nothing became something, and that should never be. But that's a story for another time. It is said that Ogdor's spot by the ocean is still there, and even though Lumia missed her friend's goofy smile, she still felt encouraged to paint her best work every evening, seeing his arms and hands forever giving her two thumbs up. Chapter 10 Iris was lying in bed after a long day of adventures. She'd saved a bunch of talking bunnies that day from a wolf pack, including Mayor Bun-Buns of Briarville, and in doing so, she made a best friend for life. Her grandmother, Samsara, sat next to her and explained for the hundredth time, this is why the southern end of the bay is called the left arm, and the northern end is called the right arm. The arms form the ridgelines that encircle and protect our two moons bay from the worst of Queen Um's storms. And Iris quickly blurted out like she'd repeated this a million times already and was bored with it, and that's why the mountains of the end are called the fists and the peaks at the top of them where the lighthouses are are built called the thumbs, right? Yes, yes, very good. I hope my story wasn't as boring for you as the geography lessons seem to have become, hmm? Getting too old for my bedtime stories, are we? Samsara half-jokingly chided Iris. Iris quickly grabbed one of Samsara's hands and squeezed it three times. It was one of their little codes. It meant, I love you, without ever having to say it out loud. No way, Grandma. I'm sorry. I, I really didn't mean to be rude. Please don't ever stop telling me stories. I do love them, even if I have heard them a million times already, she quickly added. But they're always a little different, just like Ogdor's Mountains, and, and, <sighs> she yawned, after which her eyelids blinked slowly three times as she fought to stay awake. Finally, as her eyes shut, she trailed off, I have some stories to tell you. <sighs> and just like that, she was asleep. Samsara whispered, 
lord of herself into Iris. Well, I'm certain you do, but it's time to sweet child. Often after the story was done, Iris would close her eyes to try to keep two thumbs up to see if she'd dream of being a mountain giant falling in love with sunsets. Inevitably, she would relax her fists while Samsara did her trick that always lulled Iris, especially if she was having a hard time doing it on her own. Samsara would slowly and lightly run the tips of her fingers down Iris's forehead to the end of her nose over and over while she sat beside her on the bed. It never seemed to fail, putting Iris right to sleep, just like it did this night. And that's the end of this episode. This story really took a, on a life of its own over the last few weeks. Once I started writing it, I felt like I needed to get it out of my head and onto the page before I could move on making more episodes of the current story. So I apologize for this little sidetrack, but I'm going to continue recording The Shark in the Bay and putting out those episodes really soon. Hopefully without any more sidetracks or interruptions, but I can't promise anything. And this is how all the stories in the Iris Chronicles were written, and I'm trying to make this podcast the same way, I guess, as I make these stories. You know, it ends up being a piece at a time with occasional world building in between connecting it all together. All our stories are works in progress, so if you have any feedback or questions about them, you can email me at storytimewiththesprings at gmail.com. Thanks again so much for listening, and I'll see you on the next one.